Well, boys, looks like you started the fun without me. You're all sick. Every last one of you. We're going to need a bigger gun. What's the matter? You scared of things that go boom? Okay, got some notes, got some uh, this. Recording a show from New York City. My name is Eric13. And here to stand by me is Michael Kester. No, that's nice. That's the one I decided to go with, stand by me. Yeah, that's. Uh, Today on Double Feature, we're going to cover murder children or child murder or murder and children. Two great tastes that go great. We're doing summer of 84. Yeah. Here to account for what the fuck is this theme, Michael Custer. <laughs> um, is it 1984? It's summer of 84, right? Yes, yes. just want to make sure I get it right at least one time. Okay, summer of 84. And then we're pairing that with As the Gods Will. You're really blurry on my little phone here, so I can't gauge based on your face whether that's the correct order. It's fine. If you if you want to, summer of '84 first, as the gods will, second. Great. It's well, look, as the gods will, little crazy. Yeah, I think it should go second. Sure. Um, for uh, for those of you who have given to the Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash double feature. Thank you for allowing me to uh, even see this blurry visage of Eric on my phone as we record today. For those of you who have not yet uh, or, or want to see our show continue, that's really the only goal. If you want to see more double feature shows pop up in your little Zoom feed, Just go to patreon.com forward slash double feature and make it so that Eric has a nice crisp face as I'm staring. So I can get visual cues as to whether or not I screw up the doo-wop rules when naming the films at the top of every episode of double feature. We really need to get you an entirely new device. That's like, it's just for podcasting. It's hooked up to satellites or something. I don't know. I feel like every week I'm trying to figure out how to... Or a very long string and two tin cans. Yeah, well, that's about where we're at now. But look, uh, without your support, the things you love go away. We need an audience to come with on this. Otherwise, we could just talk on the telephone. That might be easier. Gross. It's certainly not working even for our show, so I don't, you know... (laughs) I'm not sure how to talk to you about movies if I can't see, you know, a one frame per second still right. of your face. Right. So come be part of the show, patreon.com forward slash double feature. You got a back catalog. You got some fun little goodies in there. I have a additional content I've been meaning to pitch you. Oh, good. I don't think I'll do it on, on the air in case you shoot me down, but it would be really fucking cool if uh, you wanted to do it. So there, that's what I'm teasing. A cool idea that maybe you'll never hear about again. But if we can fucking fund this goddamn show already, we could uh, get back on the additional content. It's It's a goal for the end of the year. It's a goal. Consider this the pledge drive notification this week. We need to fund this show. Please just go to the Patreon. One time. Put in one time. Anyone. Can anyone go to the... Okay, I'm done. One thing you definitely have to be afraid of for at least one of the two movies this week is spoilers. Um, I'm not going to tell you which movie is (laughs) incredibly spoilable, 
but I oh bet God. you can guess. Uh, one of these movies is wildly spoilable, and it's actually sort of one of the things that makes the movie um, great and also hyper rewatchable. And uh, the other movie, you know, has a has a giant toy cat. So we'll see if you can guess which one is which. <laughs> Impossible to spoil, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> All right, we'll start with summer '84. Yeah, uh, I yeah, I want to talk about that part of it right away. It's the most important part of the movie to me. I guess uh, the logline is a good way to do that. Yeah. So this is a movie um, takes place in I don't know some random season in a year that they don't really specify, and um, it's about uh, you know if they could have just made it one year later, it could have been part of the French extreme cinematic universe. (laughs) <laughs> but we couldn't quite get the uh, Francois' own uh, bummer summer of '85. Hilarious working out here, yeah. Um, A really shame. It's uh, I just pretend that movie and see the sea take place at the same time. So not a French extreme film. Anyways, ignore me. What were you saying? A bunch of kids one summer get bored and decide that maybe their police officer neighbor is murdering kids who are going missing in town. And they decide to take it upon themselves to start a crime podcast or uh, they decide to take it upon themselves to solve the case of the missing children in their neighborhood by accusing this police officer. All right. So, you know, alternate take on this is when a bunch of children in the neighborhood begin to go missing, our protagonist suspects it's the cop who lives next door. Right. Or suspects it's the guy who lives next door, but one wrinkle, he's a cop. Right. Couldn't possibly be a cop, Michael. Cops never do anything wrong. Right. Aside from that one series we talked about last week aside from that one earth that we live on (laughs) aside from one aside from that one universal rule throughout all time in society uh here come the spoilers yeah so i think the thing you're alluding to is that the movie opens and it's like "Ooh, what if it's the cop next door and then yeah the movie is just like, no, really, it's the cop next door. Yeah. And then the twist is that it is the cop next door. This movie does this amazing thing. It's not the first movie to ever do it, but I can't think of one that's done it better, where the movie basically goes, there's an awful lot of evidence to support that the uh, the cop is actually the killer. And the movie... Is it's not even pretending that that's not the case. The movie is going, ooh, look at these circumstantial things that seem to implicate the police officer. <laughs> but me, the smart guy who has seen a number of movies, I'm sitting in my armchair going, nice try, movie. I know how this goes. I've seen the burbs. And uh, the whole time the movie is basically beating you over the head going, it's the cop. But for some reason, it's delivery, and I think the fact that your protagonists are children lead you down the path of, I know it's not the cop. Not only do they suggest that it's the cop, but they don't suggest literally anyone else. Right. And so when the, uh, when the reveal... It's it's actually it's weird because it's a single reveal, but it feels twofold. So one reveal is it's definitely the cop. Which is, it is absolutely shocking that it's actually the cop. But then it, the, the second shoe falls and it's, and he's an absolute monster, which of course he is. You've been telling me the whole time he's killing children. 
But to me, I think you mentioned Stand By Me at the beginning, which, you know, definitely includes death. I always think of the more modern take on this because it's one of the best movies I've seen in a long time, which is the It remake, the first one. But there's sort of this intrinsic thing to these movies about groups of kids who encounter death younger than they should, right? That's really what we're talking about here. We did that movie, uh, I can't think of the name of it, I'm sure you're going to know it, but the one last year where like the, the kids accidentally killed their friend, just that one movie. Um, <laughs> spoiler, Jesus. But uh, Super dark spoiler. But uh, it's it's... With all of these movies, there's like a point where they diverge, and one is, ooh, it's dark and creepy, but like in a fun sort of like post-Adams family way. Mm-hmm. And then there's movies like this, where it goes, turns out it is the cop, he's a monster, and yes, this is reality, look how awful this is. Yeah. And suddenly, instead of being along for the ride, part of you goes, why, how did, how are we, these kids should not be this close to this situation. The juxtaposition of, you know, the quintessential innocence of youth and also a man who's been kept prisoner in the basement for an innumerable amount of days. Those two things should not cross based on the first half of this movie. The first half of this movie has like school dances and these kids are having, you know, I joke all the time at the end of every single movie. I love to just say, and that's how we spent our summer. Yeah. Because I just think that that's a funny way to end every story. Um, and a lot of movies feel that way. Yeah. A lot of movies do feel, especially <laughs> when the protagonists are this age. Yeah. They're riding their bikes. They get into trouble. The trouble becomes way over their head. You know, they accidentally have a glancing blow with adulthood. And that's how we spent our summer. Right. <laughs> And so the first part of this movie feels very much like that's how we spent our summer. And the last third of this movie feels very much like, and that's how my life got ruined. Yeah, the last, um, God, especially when they're in the woods. You know, the the feeling of this, it, this movie like kind of lures you into this false sense of uh, of putting you back in the time and place of being on the bike. Mm-hmm. And... I think when we see, you know, there, there's been quite a few of these movies that are waves of 80s films, particularly kids on bikes, 80s films. And, you know, I think the, the, the elephant in the room is always Stranger Things with this mm-hmm. stuff. It's the, the most popular, like bringing synth music back, bringing back kids that age. But what's unique about this one is I watch it and I am lured into that false sense of what it's talking about. That kind of, uh, oh, this will be a fun murder mystery. Oh, I wonder if the guy next door is the clove hitch killer, you know, that sort of thing. So when you arrive at the end and it really is dangerous, I feel like, oh, wow, I shouldn't have uh, played around at this train yard with my, right. you know, pals, whatever, whatever the fuck... Uh, <laughs> I shouldn't have gone on this boat ride. I don't know. We could do this, I mean, literally all day and night with these movies. So yeah, it does catch you off guard. We're not doing we're not doing a stand by me thing. We're not mm-hmm. doing a um it doesn't feel like we're safely in ET the whole time. Mm-hmm. We do enter a very dangerous, you know, it becomes a serial killer kind of movie at the very end. It's almost this feeling like, oh, fuck, how did we get here, even though we should have known we were heading straight here the whole time. The other thing about this, the 
to your point that makes this especially frightening when it all shakes out is that in any of these other movies, when they find a dead body, you know, when, when they suspect the old lady next door is like eating the neighborhood cats or whatever the fuck they're trying to discover this, this adult who's misbehaving, who's like doing this bad thing. The thing that doesn't seem important in this movie until it seems like the only thing that matters is that not only is the murderer in this town, a murderer, a serial killer, but he's specifically preying on children. Mm -hmm. It seems like that is just a fact of this movie that provides a catalytic reason for these kids to be interested because it's their classmates. And so they're directly involved in a way that if it were, you know, some lady at the grocery store, it may not even be in their orbit. But the second it turns out that they're right and they know who this guy is, yeah, it's like this pang of of consciousness where you're like, oh shit, he kills kids. That's his thing. Mm. And these kids just literally walked into his house. Any other horror movie, we talk about this all the time on the show too, but you have your killer, but that killer, the one thing he won't do is kill children or dogs. He may be a monster, but he's not that big of a monster. But this guy comes to the table going, my primary mode of murder is the young kind. Yeah. And that's really scary when the kids are like, we found him. Oh, shit. <laughs> Especially when, when it all comes down to the kid's parents forcing him to go to the cop and go, hey, sorry, I thought I was on to you, but I guess I was wrong. What a fucking scene, too. <laughs> you know, that is, I think one of the things when we revisit this era that a lot of filmmakers like to talk about is and you know a, a lot of commentators have spoken to this the just straight divide between growing up in an age where there it was pre cell phone it was pre internet it was pre air tags there was no knowing where the fuck your kid was you know and this is I mean I was born in eighty six so I don't genuinely have like summer of uh, 84 type memories. Mm -hmm. But I feel like even for us in the 90s, it was pretty similar. It was sort of like your free time was your own after school. You could get on a bike, you could ride off and do what the fuck ever. There just wasn't this ability to immediately get a hold of a authority figure if you needed one. And then we come up to a scene like this one you're talking about where even once these kids are at home, they're safe, they've got all the clues, they're presenting the evidence, they're talking to their parents, it comes back to bite them. So, you know, one of the, the key themes of Summer of 84, I feel like, again, that separates it from other movies that do play around in this time, is that there is uh, an authority figure piece of this that just feels really spot on to me. Mm-hmm. It's not just the cop, you know, we'll talk about the cop, but it's even coming to their parents and going, hey, look at this, look what's going on. And their parents going, well, you are a bunch of stupid little kids. So we're going to go make you <laughs> talk to, like, we're going to put you in the world's worst situation. I mean, it, For it, it immediately brought me back to, yeah. yeah, it brought me back to like being in school and hating it, mm -hmm. you know, having people who are older than me put me in a, a fucking anxious situation. There's nothing I could do about it. And just things being out of my, you know, the best thing about becoming an adult is if you don't want to fucking do something, you just don't do it. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that anybody could make me do something is like, 
it seems like there's always another choice. I could throw myself off a bridge. There's always another choice, Mm -hmm. you know. But as a kid, that school controls your whole life. Adults control your whole life. The camp counselors control, you know, all these different figures that your destiny isn't your own. And so if they don't believe something you're saying, you're fucked. Mm -hmm. In fact, you have to be careful to even come to them hoping they believe you because any encounter with an adult could potentially be dangerous. These are people, after all, who steer your path, who are in control of your destiny. So hopefully you have a great relationship with them. Hopefully they believe everything you say. Hopefully it's not like the parents in this movie, but fuck if it is, they're dragging you over to the killer's house. Right. And the movie doubles up on that with the killer himself being a, you know, in a lot of ways, the ultimate figure of authority, literally the law. And so this is something I love about this movie is thinking about, especially that it's in the 80s. You know, let's think back to the movies in the 80s. We've covered uh, every fucking one of them. Think about cops in the 80s. What, what, how are cops in the 80s represented? Oh, I mean, definitely it was so much different than now. I mean, shit. They're the paragons of your neighborhood, of society. Even bad cops, bad cops were glamorized, lethal weapon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, that's an 80s trope mm-hmm. is cops are the protagonists of the movies. Cops are one of like four stock protagonists. If you're in mm-hmm. an action film, one of like basically two, three mm-hmm. stock protagonists and you follow them and immediately it was, it was actually kind of viewed as like, well, we want the audience to be on their side. What's an easy win? I'll make them a cop. You know, (laughs) which today is just like fucking laughable to me. But if this movie were genuinely coming out in 84, the idea that a police officer could be the killer, it almost seems beyond the suspension of disbelief in a lot of ways. We did have movies where, you know, figures of authority, especially cops, um, where we covered Maniac Cop on this show. Mm-hmm. That movie was like ahead of its time, basically. It was avant-garde for being like, what if the killer was also a cop? Right. You know, we didn't have that challenge to authority. Like today, it seems too obvious to be true. Like, what if the cop was doing something bad? Like, a fucking course he is. What are you talking about? <laughs> he signed up to be a cop. That's probably why he did it. Okay, case closed. So I feel like today you can do this movie... It's just interesting to me to think about this type of antagonist or just 80s police in film post-American George Floyd protests. Mm -hmm. Because how the the police were represented in media was totally different back then. And I feel like the worldview of not everyone, but certainly a lot of people who would watch horror films or who are younger their suspicion is already there. This movie came out before the George Mm -hmm. Floyd protests. I don't know. When did you see this? I saw it definitely after. I saw it fairly recently. Um, I watched it right at the beginning of, I I had been meaning to see it, but I think it like went off and then came back onto Shudder. So I watched it fairly recently. Yeah. It's also one of those movies that it's got like a certain icon. I think honestly, you know, you're mentioning how we've seen every movie from the eighties. I feel like it's, the poster and the imagery are so iconographically in the pocket of the 80s that I was like, I've seen that. I've 100% seen that. Sure, sure. 
but then I, I think I bloody milk carton. Yeah, with the 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 very slasher esque summer of eighty four. It's so iconic. You just sort of yeah. You sort of feel like you oh you had to have seen it. Look at that fucking cover. Yeah. But certainly I would have watched a movie that had this cover. Exactly. <laughs> it's funny. But yeah, no, I definitely watched it um, post Cops Are the Bad Guy movement. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's funny to me because it is. Uh, it reads to me differently after the protest than before. Yeah. There is this whole, whole other layer to it that, um, you know, there's a is he, isn't he that we talked about a lot with this movie. I mean, you know, there's, there's sort of... Um, some of the themes we've seen before that are coming of age themes, but there's also a kind of look. I have a bad read on this. It's actually it's what we talked about with "So I Married an Axe Murder." Right. It's I have a read of this situation that <laughs> big if true. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not something you want to suggest unless you're fucking sure of it. So there's a, a bit of doubt, and less for the kids which is one of the kind of wonderful parts of childhood I think it's putting forth is you don't have all these preconceptions of like, what if I'm wrong or whatever. Mm -hmm. They're really just kind of like looking at the evidence in front of them and as things change, different kids kind of go, oh, well, this isn't how it is anymore. Or this is definitely what's going on here. Like the one kid is like, oh, I'm out. As an audience, you're watching the movie and I think it would be very natural to go, is he or isn't he? And then have to deal with that, you know, internally. And a lot of that, I mean, I just, man, I graph that stuff right the fuck on to the George Floyd protests, to defunding police and to um, uh, this movement to just change the entire structure, really, of policing in the United States, especially after the protests cooled a bit and we kind of saw the reality of how might this change in the country well, we're not going to literally abolish police everywhere. So really, what are we going to do? And that that kind of second guessing, I mean, I think that goes hand in hand with dealing with any figures of authority. Should presidents have that much power? Is our Senate useless? You know, really, you know, it it goes back to like I was talking about when you're younger, Mm -hmm. figures of authority being, um, being such a dubious proposition to engage with. And... While, of course, all of that is unintentional because of the time the movie was made, it's kind of amazing how much of it, you know, I'm just, I'm utterly consumed with that while watching it. Before we really get into As the Gods Will, you remember we talked about Soviet montage theory? Yes. I was just pitching this for something at work the other day. (laughs) There's this idea with... um, I won't get into a huge thing about Soviet montage theory, but it is a way of considering what an edit does to the material that is filmed. That perhaps the content of the scene isn't as important as we thought. Perhaps the context in which it's presented, pairing two images next to each other, or perhaps, Michael, two films. (laughs) Uh, That's not where I'm going with this, but also interesting. Just putting one image right after another could completely change the meaning of the image itself. And so this is the beginning of Soviet montage theory. We've talked about it before on the, on the Limey the episode Limey, way back yeah. when. And we talked about it because, you know, there was also this, this shorthand reading of it that's kind of like, fuck continuity, fuck flow. Editing is about, I'm going to show you images in a sequence, in a montage, 
not even montage how we typically think of it, but just in a sequence. And the sequence is going to put an idea in your head mm-hmm. based solely on what I cut to, when I cut to it. And so my concern, my Soviet montage theory fronted concern is I don't care about the finesse of the edit. I care what I'm showing you and what you're going to think as a result. I want to put this thought in your head. I'm going to cut to this thing. It is critical for me to bring up Soviet montage theory because I wanted to let everybody in on the first look at my developing theory of Japanese cinema, the Japanese CGI theory, wherein how I present the CGI, the fluidity of the CGI, the realism of the CGI doesn't fucking matter at all. Mm -hmm. I just want you to look at a floating head or a talking cat. And so I'm just going to fucking show that to you because somebody needs to explain what the hell is going on with the CGI in these (laughs) Japanese movies. Yeah, I swear to God, it's getting worse year after year. It is, uh, this is almost a cartoon film. Utterly bizarre. And yet I do feel like there's something to watching this movie where it's kind of like, look, but you get the point, right? Mm -hmm. And you're creeped out, right? Well, then fine. The CGI did its job. Right. Japanese CGI theory. I don't know. I'm working on it. I just wanted to clue people in. It's it's funny because I think that uh, this is a really good movie to look at it. So this is Takashi Miike. Um, He's a, it's, God. It's weird. So he's this director. We've covered a ton of his movies. Go into our back catalog um, on the Patreon. Just check it out. Takashi Miike, he's done a lot of movies. That's like the thing, right? He's done like 120 fucking movies in his life. And if you were to list his top 10 all next, if you were to list the Takashi Miike movies we have covered on Double Feature, just see all those movies side by side, you would be baffled that it was the same dude doing all this. Mm. And this is no exception. I do think that the CG, you know, the Daruma at the very beginning of the movie. Um, Can we get a log line for this movie? Yeah, I mean, that's easy. Great. Aliens attack a school and force kids to play violent games with their old toys. <laughs> Something like that. I feel like the gods are important. It spells out some kind of riddle or something. It's not important at all. Right. (laughs) Um, So this movie, this, God, I could do the entire episode. I could have done the entire double feature tonight on not even two movies, just on the first and second scenes of uh, (laughs) As the Gods Will. So this movie opens on this, serene, very Japanese manga-esque anime, you know, real-life anime moment of these falling feathers on a sunny day. And uh, one of our protagonists, he says something along the lines of, my life is very boring. Smash cut to this fucking bobblehead at the front of a schoolroom, blowing up children's heads and screaming his own name at them while he spins in a circle. It's funny because the movie sort of opens on this, this idea and then immediately goes anyway. So here's the actual movie. And it's sort of like to, in, in a way it's sort of like Takashi Miike is proving a point. He's like, this, you may not be understanding this. This may not be making sense. Some of these plot points may be contrived. You may not believe that this guy recorded that weird little peg saying the thing in advance because he knew it would come to fruition later. Uh-huh. But none of that is the fucking point. I'll tell you what you aren't, and it's bored. Yeah, yeah. this is uh, an all-time Hall of Famer for 
show someone this scene and dare them to not watch the movie. Right. You know, <laughs> so often on this show, we're coming on here and really the, like, uh, not to pull the curtain back too much, but the whole point of Double Feature is movies are exciting. You should check out these movies we just watched. We're excited about them. Go see the movie. Mm-hmm. That's priority number one is get people to watch some of these movies and enjoy them together. And uh, and so one of the things I run into all the time is like, oh man, I just saw this movie. It was great. I don't know how to talk about it with people. I can't seem to motivate people to go check out the stuff I'm into. I like all this stuff, Michael. I can't get people to go see it. <laughs> and sometimes you see a movie and you're like, watch the first fucking three minutes of this movie and tell me you're not going to watch the rest of it. Yep. It's so fucking bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> and part of it is the CG. It's but it's also the the scenario, and it's um, look and there's a whole run of these Japanese films too, and there's you know there, there's a lot of uh, long ago we talked about the um, what was the the subgenre we talked about but I think feel like it was Asian extreme right yeah mm-hmm. yeah so I mean movies like Tag or. Um, Machine Girl was that one of them? Yeah, Tokyo Gore Police. Am I remembering the name of that? Yep, Tokyo Gore Police was one. Did we do Robo Geisha, or did that just come out at the same time? No, no, I don't think we did. No, but I mean, we we have covered. uh, I feel like these movies are so weird. Maybe you get one of them every three years, Mm -hmm. and then you're sort of like, "Wow, that was a lot." Yeah, but no matter what I've seen before, I still watch this opening scene, and I that's the thing that got me on this movie. It's a film from 2014. It's kind of coming back up again. I'm excited about that because I was always sort of bewildered that people didn't know about this because it's so fucking weird. It just seems like, why is no one watching this? Is mm-hmm. the, do people not know this exists or is it not? It certainly, is it not available? It certainly seems like if you just showed someone the marble scene that they would be like, this is fucking weird. I have to see what the hell this is. <laughs> It is, uh, and yeah, a lot of that is uh, scenario. So you're in the classroom, heads are exploding, there's this game. But even for people who like extreme Asian cinema, or of course, for us, always talking about goddamn bottle movies, Mm -hmm. I have never seen a movie, I don't think, that starts with someone basically emerging from the final scene of a bottle film. Mm -hmm. You know, that classroom could have been the whole, that's a whole circle Mm -hmm. right there. And so you get through this game, and then it's sort of like, oh, what's next? And they're coming together with other classmates from other places, and eventually the... um, you know, it's sort of done in like uh, four or five different games. But you never quite know, I don't know, even just something about the kind of patter of it. The way that the <laughs> the games sort of like require an explanation of how to, like they have to solve the games for you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They have to kind of go, aha, well, what I'm going to do is see, I've got this hoop and it's like a basketball thing. You got to put the bell in or the the one you were mentioning, you know, well, I recorded a voice memo because it's it's as if every game comes with its own Bond villain monologue. Right. Of, and, so, and you're getting one like every 20 minutes. <laughs> it's so, it's so fucking bizarre. It's like purposefully convoluted. 
Well, and I also think too that one of the things that um, as as two non-Japanese guys watching this movie, I don't know if that's still true for you, but it's still true for me, is that uh, there is sort of it's it's there is this sort of like built-in knowledge that you could come to the movie with, which is understanding what the fuck a Daruma is or why that cat is part of Japanese culture or yeah, whether or yeah, not yeah, those yeah. peg people are something that everyone has, or if they're just like a random thing that was created because each of these things. Well, and they have names right, too. Right. So yeah, you're like, Oh, I'm sorry. Am I just supposed to know what these names <laughs> yeah, are? That's the thing. Like if, if I were the white foreign exchange student in that scene and they were like, guess who's behind you? I'm like, I got to guess you get, you have fucking names. They're not even color coded. And so there's definitely a piece of it that gets naturally lost in translation because like I had to look up what a Daruma was all about. And like, that's only the only reason I could even do that is because he shouted his name so fucking much. I could Google it. And then the cat, you know, you look that up, but once you get to the peg people and the stuff later on, that's like deeper into what I assume is, you know, the natural, those natural, I just like, there's, there's a piece of this that I know I don't understand, but I seem to understand it as these are all toys that are ubiquitously understood by Japanese youth. These are all things that they all had, they all played with. Or subversions of games, too, right? Because right? they mentioned like red light, green light. Sure. Kick the can, right? Like a can isn't necessarily a toy, but it's, yeah, it's like children's games. Right. And so there's definitely a part of it that requires, to me, that level of explanation. Because like, you know, when they're like, oh, here's the bell. I'm like, why is there a bell? And, and then they're like, we need to put it back on its neck. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, I didn't, you guys, you didn't, you didn't tell me the cat came with a bell. You can't just, you can't go, the bells fell off. You got to tell me, I, I didn't see the bell. And so to American audiences, I feel like that adds this layer of like absolute bananasness because you can't even, you're starting from below ground level on the movie. Yeah, yeah. I've always felt that way with, and this is one of those things that, you know, it could be, uh, I could be afraid to admit this in front of people. I'm just going to say it on the podcast. I really don't give a fuck. But, you know, you don't want to come to it and go, I am so culturally ignorant. Right. But there is something about insane Japanese movies where I kind of just feel like, oh, fuck, am I missing something that I need to know right. for this movie? And this one just rubs it in my face mm -hmm. because it is like, oh, it's based on these games. It's based on these toys. It's based on, oh, you know how it's like a fucking anagram or something. You know, you combine, oh, wait, guys, if you put together this piece and this piece, what do all these games have in common? They spell out what? What do they spell out? I don't, I don't even understand this revelation. What are we fucking talking about here? So especially after the movie has handed me so many things, heavy <laughs> handed me so many things. And then to go, oh, if you uh, think about the syllables and you like combine the mm -hmm. syllables and this sounds like this and whatever, and I'm trying to, I'm warping the subtitle. I'm like, okay, so the word it's telling me in the subtitle, do these actually all start with the same letter in Japanese? Are these... Is this like a Japanese rhyme, but when you say it in English, it doesn't rhyme anymore? Is that like what's going on? Right. And so when they reach the conclusion of that, 
I'm just sort of like, yeah, I, you guys are I'm just totally gonna, talking beyond me. I'm just going to take your word for it, y'all. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, there is some heavy, I'm going to take your word for yeah. it. In, uh, yeah, because it, it feels like it feels like it should be that scene in Black Dynamite when they find out what Anaconda Malt Liquor is all about. But instead, you're just yeah, like, yeah, I yeah. can't get there from here. I'm sorry. Deep reach with the uh, Black Dynamite. There's a movie <laughs> I need to watch again. Yeah, and I think for me that adds something to the movie. It adds something really valuable. I think it might even play better for me than if I did follow it because the the sort of, um, I don't know, this movie is all about the bewilderment mm-hmm. for me. And I know that's kind of a, a simple look at it, but it is the strongest, you know, it's a wild movie. And the wilder it is, the better it is. So putting together clever little pieces of Fermat's rooming, I'm not really sure like how valuable that's going to be versus just going, don't you understand when you add this word and this word? It's, it's like I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine, um, you know, how an Asian audience must watch like fucking Pool or something. Right. You know, right. <laughs> just like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. Or dude, where's my car? <laughs> Maybe, yeah. <laughs> The entire reason, the entire event to be here for is the fucking nightmare fuel aspect of this. And so many times this movie has it, just things that even being jaded now, I feel like I would not want to, I would not want to wake up in a cold sweat thinking about the bird in a cage game, uh, CGI figures. Yeah. Because they just, and it's also so bizarre, right? Because none of them are really menacing. They're all like kind of, they're a little manic happy, mm-hmm. but they all have just one piece of uncanny element design kind of, um, sorry, I'm like shuddering even fucking thinking about so. <laughs> but you know, the the nesting dolls have like human teeth and stuff. You know what I mean? Right. There's just one right. little bit of like, Oh, I don't really know what this is. The thing on the desk in the first scene. What, what's mm-hmm. the name of this thing? It's a Daruma. Daruma, yeah. And I, I don't know anything about the Daruma. I just know I look at it and I kind of feel like, I don't know what it is about the design, sure. man. Yeah. It has that certain something to it. Yeah. The je ne sais Daruma <laughs> that uh, just makes me so fucking uncomfortable. And the way it talks and the way it just... Every little part of it is, and God, also the part of it that that is unassuming. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's actually probably the biggest thing. You know, when you think about like, you're talking about um, watching Summer of 84 on Shudder. You know, one of the big Shudder poster monsters is the all-tooth monster from Channel Zero. Yeah. You know, the one I'm talking mm-hmm. about, it's all teeth. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, we see, um, you know, ones that a lot of people recognize from marketing and stuff. It's like American Horror Story. These very intentionally designed, a lot of people are going to look at them and let's just tap into something that makes people uncomfortable. But when you look at it, you know what they're trying to do. They're trying to have the scariest Halloween costume. Mm -hmm. They're trying to make a monster where it's got, you know, the teeth is an easy one, right? Like I've seen so many people um, in the effects community design things and and to great effect, but like it's teeth kind of coming out of an eye socket yep. or something, very gross. And we have natural reactions to that, but there's always part of me that's kind of like, you're showing me something, so I feel grossed out about it. But if I saw 
some of the the if I walked into a effect shop and saw some of the things from this movie, I would just feel like, oh, I'm not supposed to be creeped out by this, and that's creeping me out even more. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an unassuming nature to it, I guess that uh, it just makes it even worse to me because I sit there and I question it and I go, why is this freaking me out so much? Why does it make me so uncomfortable? Is there something wrong, you know, about feeling so uncomfortable just seeing like a Japanese children's toy or something? And it's creepy. It's super creepy. And I think I think sort of what you were saying, the thing that makes it creepier is that the thing that's scaring the shit out of you just thinks they're having fun. That makes it so much worse. <laughs> Well, I love that in the last game, right? It's yeah. just sort of like, no one said anything about dying. What do you, why would you say, I, don't, I have no idea why you'd reach that conclusion. <laughs> Here, have a popsicle. You know, it's just like, what the fuck? I'm not sure how much of a conclusion that is to reach about as the gods will, but it is a fucking weird movie. And uh, if you haven't seen it, you should just watch the first five minutes. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good luck with the rest of that <laughs> that runtime. Uh, All right, we have a website. The website is doublefeature.fm. The Patreon is patreon.com forward slash doublefeature. Go on the Patreon and check out the other... Uh, man, this is a great episode for Back Catalog, actually. You can check out some of the previous Stand By Me era or Stand By Me, um, uh-huh. uh, you know, some of the 80s stuff, man. Mm-hmm. And also any kind of Asian extreme movie, they're all weird in their own special ways. And every time I see one, I want to do more on the show. Yeah, same. I know I'll regret that decision, but, you know, I feel like... Every time I see one, I want to rewatch Happiness of the Katakuris. Yes. Um, <laughs> so if you want to see any of those shows, or, or if you want to hear those shows, or see them on, uh, you know, whatever device you're using, that's patreon.com forward slash double feature. If you just uh, donate some money to it's it's twofold, right? That's a re- that's one reward. One reward is that you get uh, you get to go back and check out every Takashi Miike movie we've done, even the one with the swimming in the breast milk. Oh my god, so many Takashi Miike movies. <laughs> the other reward, the man who's been canceled a hundred times. <laughs> you get to keep the show alive, and uh, we'll come back next week. Ooh, oh shit! It's always funny we get to this point in the show, and I mention next week. Remember what we're doing, and it's like excited. It's like a fresh excitement. It's the same. It matches the excitement from the top of the show. This is a big one. This is a real big one. We don't, uh, you know, we don't often celebrate the random round numbers, but I did notice this also happened to be show 700. Jesus. Which is just kind of dumb. It's Mm. just kind of a bad decision on everyone's part. Yeah. I don't know how we, at least we restarted this year. At least this is like the first year of the show again. Right. So (sighs) go back to... uh, Criminal lovers and marijuana. Yeah. Start the. Yep. Just pretend that's the first episode. Mm-hmm. But if you have been around for quite a while, you'll notice there's a lot of these shows in the back catalog. We've hit number 700 and we've hit, once again, a Killapalooza. That's right. Do you want to you wanna name the producers before we name the Palooza? Oh, of course I do. It's Henrik Dinner, The Abbot of Unreason, Tom Leonard, Tony Gleed. And John. All right. So this is this is definitely a Killapalooza that that like year six Eric would have like been a hard no on. <laughs> but here we are in year fucking fourteen or whatever. Uh, we get to do all four as it stands. Four uh, VHS movies. Wow. Yeah. What? 
There's a fourth VHS movie. Yeah, so VHS has has Crazy. recently been added to the pantheon of killapaloozable franchises. Um, so we'll do VHS, we'll do VHS two, we'll do VHS viral, and then we'll do uh, VHS ninety four because we're going to jump ten years in the future from summer of eighty four and do VHS ninety four. But this is funny because this is sort of like a, it's like an anthology of anthologies, which I literally can like hear you seething <laughs> five years ago about the idea of doing an anthology of anthologies. And now here you are I know, it's crazy. giddy at the idea of four VHS movies back to back to back. I'm just excited to see if we could possibly talk about for even a minute, just talk about every single segment. I'm sure we'll, <laughs> somebody doing, you know, probably John doing some accounting of what happens in the show. will notice there'll be entire things we don't even get to. There is a lot of fucking movie in those four movies. It's going to be some dense watching. Uh, I might even have to bust out the notebook for the first time in like wow. 10 years. Wow. Just to keep track. Um, all right. Well then brace yourselves, watch more fucking film and bye.